Well, it is a joy to be together in the house of the Lord this morning. Today we are continuing in our mini-series on the patriarchs, which Sterling started last week. He preached about Father Abraham and how God promised Abraham and Sarah that they would have this child despite their old age. And today we will continue to look at the radical faith of Abraham. But before we do, I have a question. Have any of you ever in your entire lives had a bad dream? I figure since I have officially been appointed here for another year, and we've made it four years together, it's time that I tell you something about myself. I have overactive bad dreams, often. And this leads to me sleep talking daily and sleepwalking occasionally. Almost always these bad dreams are stress-induced. So this began when I was in elementary school. I would wake up completely dressed and ready for the day, only for my parents to tell me it was the middle of the night. In middle school, um, while at a cheer camp, I was really nervous about having to perform a back handspring on a hard gym floor the next day, and so I woke up in the hallway of the hotel we were staying in at cheer camp. When I was in high school, I was working at Noah's Ark in Panama City Beach, and I was stressed about playing guitar the next day, a song I had never played before. And I woke up standing on the beach, which is across the street from Noah's Ark. And then the freakiest thing happened when I was in college. I was running cross-country my first year at Huntingdon, and I woke up and thought I was late for practice. So to get to practice quicker, I got in my car, and I woke up at a stoplight on my way to cross-country practice. So after this event, my mom and I went to see a speech specialist, and I have been on medication ever since, which mostly keeps me from the sleepwalking. But really, the most amazing thing about all of this is that Micah knew all of these stories, and he married me anyway. And today, we celebrate seven years of marriage. Today! So. I could not be more grateful for his patience, his kindness, especially in the midst of these sleep episodes. I mean, this is pretty bizarre. That's why I've waited this long to share this with you. It's a very strange thing. But since they are usually stress-induced, my words and my actions come across like a stressed person. So he can always tell if I'm actually awake or asleep, despite what I may tell him. So when I do dare to talk or sit up or try to get out of bed, he'll say things like, you're asleep, everything is okay. You can relax, just go back to sleep. The bad dreams may not go away immediately, but by the morning, we usually laugh about whatever ridiculous thing I said or did while sleeping. And that, my friends, is the best part about a bad dream. We've all had bad dreams, and the best part is waking up and realizing, ah, it was just a dream. None of that was real. It was all in my imagination. But what happens when something truly horrific happens or is asked of you while you are awake, while you are conscious, 
like, I don't know, God asking you to kill your only son. This is a nightmarish passage that we have just read that we are going to wrestle with together this morning. This is a passage we would like to explain away. We want to justify God's actions. But it is pretty clear God wasn't asking him to spiritually kill his son or to imagination to imagine killing his son. He was actually asking him to sacrifice his son Isaac. The story begins, after all these things, God tested Abraham. So what are these things that have happened so far? God's promise to Abraham, or God's call to Abraham to go to a land he's never seen. God's promised Abraham that he will be the father of a great nation, the long years of Sarah's barrenness, the birth of Ishmael, and at long last, the birth of their awaited son, Isaac, whom they call Laughter. The story's very first sentence, God tested Abraham, serves to explain the whole story to those of us who read it. But what about to Abraham? What about to Isaac? What about to Sarah, who's not even mentioned in this story? The story's characters don't know the purpose behind what is about to happen. So they are left to wonder, like I'm sure many of us do today, why does God command this? And is God really going to let it happen? The call is clear. Abraham is to take Isaac to the land of Moriah, where he is to offer him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains. Mount Moriah is also called the Mount of the Lord in verse 14. The only other biblical information we have about this physical place comes from 2 Chronicles 3.1, which says, The house of the Lord in Jerusalem is on Mount Moriah. So Genesis 22 is a foundation origin story of where the temple would reside later on, on God's holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, the joy of all the earth. And so each year, Israelites would make the joyful pilgrimage to Jerusalem to sacrifice and encounter God on this very mountain at the temple. The pilgrimage to Jerusalem involved a three days journey, just like the one Abraham and Isaac have just taken. The end and high point of this joyful trek is encountering the divine. These biblical parallels suggest, again, that Genesis 22 presents this test of Abraham in terms of the three basic components of an ancient pilgrimage, the three-day journey, the sacrifice of a living creature, and an encounter with God. As a side note, Mount Moriah is where the Temple Mount sits on top of today. So it's still a high and holy place. So Abraham, he does what God demands and sets out with his son. I imagine it was a probably a pretty quiet walk. We don't have a lot of their dialogue there. Abraham doesn't say much. Isaac says even less. So we're left to imagine what these three days must have been like. The narrator tells us several things over and over as if we could forget the narrator says that the father and son walk together, together they walk. And again and again, the narrator emphasizes the relationship between Abraham and Isaac. It says, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son, Isaac. Isaac said, Abraham, my father. He said, here I am, my son. Again, over and over in this passage, repetition is used to emphasize their relationship. 
But somewhere along the journey, Isaac is a little confused. He realizes we have everything for the sacrifice except the actual sacrifice. Dad, where is the lamb? Whether Isaac knew what was going to happen is not clear. And it's something that the rabbis and scholars have debated since this story came to be. Maybe Isaac did not know, which means his innocent question of where is the lamb must have been extremely painful to Abraham. But some believe that maybe Abraham told Isaac. Maybe he told him, this is what God has called me to do, and this is what is going to happen when we reach the top of this mountain. Perhaps if Isaac did know what was the plan, he too is an example of great faith and obedience. But when they, we, when they reach the place of sacrifice, Abraham builds an altar. Again, the narrator emphasizes this relationship between the two. And right when Abraham reaches out his hand to take the knife to kill his son, God calls out with great urgency, Abraham, Abraham. Abraham replies for the third and final time in this story, here I am. One can imagine that he is flooded with unspeakable relief and hope. The Lord says, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Again, at the beginning of the passage, we are told that this is a test, but it is a test. A little like placing a tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden, God granted Abraham the free will to choose how and if he would respond with obedience. But my question with stories like this one, and maybe you wonder too, is how did Abraham know without a shadow of a doubt that this was God speaking to him, telling him to do this horrific thing? God has been known to speak through dreams, which for reasons I've already shared would cause me pause. Other times, God speaks through a priest or a prophet or an angel or a friend. And sometimes God speaks directly, as in this passage. God speaks directly to Abraham, calling him by name. And perhaps because of their relationship, Abraham knows God's voice. He knows that it is God speaking to him to do this impossible thing. But still, we are left to wonder why this test had to happen in the first place. Well, with a spirit of generosity, let's consider a few things about this story. First, throughout the Bible, even when child sacrifice was happening in other cultures, God never condones it. Leviticus 20, 2-3 says, Any Israelite or any foreigner residing in Israel who sacrifices any of his children to Molech, which is the name of another god, is to be put to death. For by sacrificing his children to Molech, he has defiled my sanctuary and profaned my holy name. So it is clear throughout scripture over and over again that child sacrifice or human sacrifice is not something that God has ever required or ever will require. Second, God has risked everything on Abraham. And God now needs to know if he will be faithful to his end of the deal. Abraham and his descendants are the means by which God has chosen to bless the entire world. 
But Abraham has not always proven up to the task until this point. Remember the sister-wife charades? There was Hagar and Ishmael. So God, maybe, needs to know whether or not Abraham is willing to give up the most precious thing in his life to the God who gave it to him in the first place. Third, God promised that Abraham's descendants would outnumber the stars in the sky. In this promise that was made to Abraham, it wasn't just made to Abraham. It was made to Abraham and Sarah. And as a sign of his faith, Abraham even says to the two young men who came with he and Isaac up the mountain that he is going to take his son, they are going to go and worship, and then they will both be back. Abraham trusted God's promise to be true and is remembered for his faith throughout the Bible. And finally, as generations of Christians have seen, Genesis 22 seems to foreshadow the greatest story of all time that's still being told. The story of our God who sacrificed his only beloved son, who died and rose again that we might have eternal life. Jesus, son of Abraham, son of David, son of God. Like Jesus, Isaac trusted his father, even when he was surely confused and troubled by the lack of sacrifices they trekked up the mountain. Like Jesus, Isaac carried his own wood to the sacrifice. So in the history of Christian interpretation, Genesis 22 is understood as a story of faith against all odds in the foreshadowing of God's self-giving love in Jesus Christ. When Abraham passes this test, God does provide a ram who will take the place of his only beloved son. So Abraham names this place, God will provide. I mean, what a story. This is really wild. And I guess this is why Abraham was chosen to be the patriarch of our faith. Because who of us could have done this thing? Who of us could have lifted the knife over our only son? The story, troubling as it is, causes us to reevaluate our lives. We're forced to reckon with the truth that all that we are and all that we have ultimately belongs to God, who has given us life and all that we know and all that we love. It is a recentering, a recalling that our lives are a gift, not a guarantee. So, how do we bring forward? this type of faith today? And do we really trust that God can provide? Nowhere in the Bible does it say that a life of faith will be easy or pain-free or without trials. But here are a few things it does say. God promises to never leave or forsake us. God promises that there is nowhere we can go and nothing we can do that will put us outside the realm of God's love for us. God has promised to give us rest, to carry our burden. God has promised to be with us until the very end of the age. And perhaps most assuring is written in the well-known John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. These promises are for today, they're for tomorrow, and they are for all of our days. 
No matter what happens in our lives, no matter how horrific the scenes when we wake or when we sleep, we can trust that God's promises are sure. They are constant, they are steady, even in moments that feel hopeless or unbelievably challenging. We can remember that we worship a God who provides. The Lord did provide for Abraham, and the Lord has provided for us. May we seek to have a faith like Abraham, believing these promises to be true. In the name of God, our creator, redeemer, and sustainer. Amen.